1: Hey, it's Stephanie. This week we're re-airing one of our favorite episodes from last year. It's about how we can use our wastewater in new ways to fertilize our fields and to create sustainable energy, including turning human waste into crude oil. Charles and I will be back with a new idea next week. See you then.
2: So I never viewed sewage as waste. I always considered it more for treasure than a nuisance. It was part of this whole circle of life. And if we didn't return it to the earth, the earth wouldn't have the stamina to feed us.
1: Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook
3: University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch.
1: Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest.
3: There's not really a polite way of getting into today's topic, so I'll just launch right into it. We need to talk about our poop. Charles,
1: we're recording.
3: I know. All jokes aside, according to our first guest, we're letting our waste go to waste. I'll let her explain.
2: For the past at least 200 years, most societies essentially wasted their easily producible and very renewable resource, which we call human waste. Meanwhile, human waste isn't waste at all. It's an incredibly versatile resource that all 7 billion of us produce regularly, most of us daily.
3: That's Lena Zeldovich. She's a journalist and author of The Other Dark Matter, the science and business of turning waste into wealth and health. Her argument is that calling it human waste is mislabeling because it isn't just waste. It's valuable organic material full of nutrients. And human waste can even be converted into multiple useful commodities, like fertilizer, biogas, and even crude oil.
2: And there's real money to be made on all this stuff. And so the plea or the argument of my book is that we really should Stop squandering this resource and make use of it.
1: While this topic isn't usually something people discuss over the dinner table, Zeldovich herself is pretty resilient to the ick factor. That probably has to do with her childhood. She grew up on her grandfather's farm in the Soviet Union. Which he fertilized with the content of our septic system. Her granddad would put on a special suit and empty the septic tank into compost pits, which he'd then leave to ferment together with food scraps and leaves. Then a few years later around springtime, he'd take out the content and use it as fertilizer for the family farm.
2: And that garden dirt smelled so good, so fresh and so fertile. You could just smell the promise of the new harvest in it. So I never viewed sewage as waste. I always considered it more for treasure than a nuisance. It was part of this whole circle of life. And if we didn't return it to the earth, the earth wouldn't have the stamina to feed us.
1: When her family left the Soviet Union and moved to New York City, Zeldovich learned that this wasn't the typical way of dealing with human
2: waste. Then I learned that the rest of the world also didn't really use most of it, didn't put it to any good use whatsoever. I thought it wasn't wasn't a very good idea of recycling.
1: Zeldovich says wasting our waste has consequences. She calls it the great sewage time bomb. Here's why. When we flush our toilets, sewage water is funneled to a wastewater treatment plant where the particles and pathogens are removed. Then the water is released back into rivers, creeks, and streams. But the problem is that this water, while technically clean, still contains nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Those are waste products from our bodies, and
2: powerful fertilizers. And it still stays in that water because only super-duper cutting-edge treatment plants can remove these fertilizers from it. So when this highly fertile water goes into our waterways, it wreaks havoc in the ecosystems because it fertilizes all the wrong things. Zeldovich
1: says this fuels toxic algae blooms, which suck oxygen out of the water. The remaining nitrogen can also cause unnatural growth in marshlands and mangroves. That makes it unnecessary for the plants to develop their own strong root systems.
2: Those roots are crucial in holding the marshes together. Eventually, this ecosystem starts to fall apart and dying. And why we're so concerned about it? Because both of them serve as nurseries for fish and they protect us from floods. And for as long as we're going to continue over fertilizing them, they're going to keep dying out. But
3: that's not all. When the water has been removed from the waste, what you have left are the solids called sludge. Zeldovich is arguing for making use of those riches, as she calls them. One common way is by using them as fertilizer. So taking that treated and processed sludge and applying it on land. The technical term for this process poop is biosolids. In the U.S., 51% of all biosolids are applied to land. The rest is mostly landfilled or incinerated. That's according to the Environmental Protection Agency. That means that an enormous amount of our waste, half, is going to waste.
0: The challenge with something like biosolids is that it contains a very large mixture of chemicals, some of which we have never really studied at all before.
1: That's Keeve Knackman. He's an associate professor of environmental health and engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health.
0: We have very little understanding of how when those chemicals stay behind in those farm soils or end up getting taken up into the crops that we eat, how much people are exposed to those chemicals and whether or not it would make people sick. There are many anecdotal reports of people who uh, believe their illnesses, have been related to exposure to some of these chemical and microbial hazards in biosolids. But there isn't a lot of great epidemiologic research out there to really confirm those anecdotes.
1: Public health advocates, as well as environmental groups, have expressed concerns over the use of biosolids. Earlier this year, Maine banned the use of biosolids on farmland after PFAS was discovered in water, crops, cattle, and soil on farms where biosolids had been spread. PFAS are man-made chemicals that have been linked to cancer and a wide range of health problems. According to The Guardian, several farms in Maine have had to shut down due to the contamination.
0: We regulate metals, right? So things like arsenic, cadmium metals that we know make people sick, and and it makes sense to regulate those chemicals. But what we're missing are other things that end up getting flushed down the toilet or are otherwise part of municipal and in even some cases industrial waste that are not addressed by sewage treatment systems that end up in the biosolids that are applied to farmland.
1: The EPA has awarded almost $6 million for several new studies on the risks of biosolids which will be conducted over the next few years. Nackman is involved with one
0: of them. So the standards for sewage sludge are pretty limited. Right now, in terms of chemicals, we regulate nine elements. We don't regulate any organic chemicals. And the pathogen standards, so the standards for infectious agents like bacteria and viruses are very old and don't reflect the latest science. So there's been a movement within the field of environmental health, and I think this is supported by public concern over the safety of biosolids a movement to more comprehensively evaluate the chemical and microbial safety of biosolids. Knowing the risks could lead to better regulation. So what we're doing in our project, aside from trying to characterize what all those chemicals are, is we're using what we call computational toxicological methods to look at chemicals that we've never seen before and try and draw inferences about those chemicals based on how similar they are to chemicals that we have studied before. So we're taking the physical properties of those chemicals and using specialized tools to forecast uh, what types of health effects may possibly arise from those chemicals and that can help us along with information about the extent to which people have contact with those chemicals. We take all that together and we can rank chemicals and say, okay, here's the list of the top 100 chemicals that we think would be important to study more and possibly regulate in future iterations of of EPA's biosolids regulatory program.
3: And just for context, Knackman says animal waste undergoes less treatment than human waste. We produce far more
0: animal waste than biosolids. We generate about 300 million dry tons per year as compared to biosolids, which are just under 5 million dry tons per year. And as compared to human waste, which has some required treatment before it's used in the agricultural setting, there is no required treatment for animal waste given concerns over what we feed animals and how residues of, say, pharmaceuticals may remain in animal waste or other pathogens may remain in animal waste. There's been a lot of attention to human health concerns associated with that type of waste management as well.
3: Knackman says that while he believes more research is needed, he thinks the practice of applying biosolids as well as animal waste to land makes sense.
0: I think both of them make sense to use in agriculture. The concern is, are we doing a good job dealing with any chemicals or other hazards that may stay behind in them? So the overall practice of waste management on agricultural land can make sense and can be done correctly. It's thinking about what's in it and where it goes that we could do a better job with that would have tremendous human health benefits if we were to get it right. What
3: if we could transform human waste into heating for houses or even ultimately jet fuel? When we're back, some new ideas that turn waste into money. That's after the break. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276 percent? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck.
2: At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough.
3: And money quickly loses value. You can't save can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers.
1: Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard about the pros and cons of using human waste as fertilizer. But as author Lena Zeldovich points out in her book, Fertilizer isn't the only way we can recycle our human waste. One thing is for certain. Sludge is something we'll continue to produce. And, well, it has to go somewhere. But as we heard earlier, there's public concern when
4: it comes to using biosolids on land. Lots of states and local governments want to keep organic waste out of landfills, and that would include biosolids. So we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with what to do with the solids that come out of wastewater
3: treatment. That's Lillian Zaremba. She's a program manager of Collaborative Innovations and Liquid Waste Services at Metro Vancouver in Canada, a 21-municipality region with five wastewater treatment plants. It services 2.5 million people. Zaremba says the amount of human waste in the region is going to triple in the next couple of decades, in part because of population growth. One solution? Turning the sludge into crude oil. In 2024, Metro Vancouver plans to launch what will be the world's first wastewater sludge bio-crude pilot. It works by using a method that sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel. It's called hydrothermal liquefaction. So
4: instead of creating biosolids, hydrothermal liquefaction uses temperature and pressure to decompose the organic material in sludge into hydrocarbons. So we put in sludge and we get out bio crude oil, and this bio crude oil can be upgraded to create sustainable aviation fuel, marine biofuel, or biodiesel.
1: That's right, bio crude oil can be used to fuel ships and airplanes.
4: We're all seeing electric cars, but in terms of electric, ships or electric planes. This is where they're going to be looking for those low carbon fuels. The method
1: has been around since the 1970s, but recent technological improvements have ironed out some of the engineering kinks, making it more cost effective than ever before. Zaremba says the process is pretty simple.
4: So first we take the sludge and dewater it until it's got a solid content of about 20 percent. Then the sludge is heated, pumped, and pressurized through a reactor, which is essentially a tube, and the conversion happens there at a temperature of 350 degrees Celsius and a pressure of 200 bar. So it's essentially like pressure cooking the sludge and, and out comes bio crude. It's actually very similar to how oil is created in nature. So same concept, um, heat and pressure, but instead of millions of years, we can do that in less than an hour.
3: Now, I think we all know that oil is a precious commodity. But what matters the most to Metro Vancouver's bottom line is that they have to spend less money on managing the sludge when it's turned into oil.
4: Biosolids, even when you create a product from them, the revenue doesn't cover the entire cost of creating the product in general. So we generally spend money on biosolids management or even when we create a soil product, for example. You know, it takes a lot on our end to make that product compared to what we can sell it for. Zaremba says half of the plant's operating
1: costs are related to biosolids. The pilot will only convert 5% of one plant's sludge. That'll be around five barrels of oil a day. Scaling up the pilot to include the waste from just one wastewater treatment plant will save them tens
4: of millions of dollars a year. And we figured that those savings would be more than double the cost of doing this pilot.
1: Now, burning oil is, of course, a major cause of climate change but zuremba says
4: not this oil fossil fuel is like a bank account where all those phytoplankton and algae and so on you know took energy from the sun millions of years ago created biomass stored it for millions of years and then we're burning it all in a matter of decades so we're putting this huge amount of carbon that was stored previously into the atmosphere all at once whereas sewage sludge that carbon came from plants you know, the food that we ate took carbon out of the atmosphere to grow, we ate it, we pooped out our poop, and then the sludge gets processed into the bio crude. And when you burn that, you're putting the carbon back in the atmosphere. But that carbon was already kind of circulating through the like the current carbon cycle in terms of plants to humans to crude. So we're not adding new carbon or that that stored carbon to the atmosphere. Metro Vancouver is also building a
1: biosolids dryer that creates pellets which can be used as fuel for the kilns that are used to produce cement. The cement industry is one of the world's most polluting. These new uses don't mean that biosolids will go away as fertilizer. Zaremba says they'll remain a valuable tool for building healthy soils and restoring land.
4: It's really hard to build back vegetation using just chemical fertilizers you know, after you close a mine or a gravel pit. So biosolids are really unique because they have organic matter and nutrients. So they're building the soil structure as well as fertilizing the plants.
1: Metro Vancouver only uses biosolids on land that isn't being used to
4: grow food crops. That type of use has more public acceptance. So we're planning to continue our biosolids uh, land application program about the same scale it is today, but we don't think we could land apply when we're going to be producing triple the amount of biosolids uh, in in a couple of decades, that's where we don't think we would be able to use all of those biosolids. And then, you know, the next decade after that, that's when we would look to hydrothermal liquefaction for the next increase. And then we could speculate about how it would unfold hundreds of years from now, or, or decades from now, in terms of the balance of biosolids being used on land, biosolids being used as fuel, and then hydrothermal liquefaction creating the
1: bio-crude.
3: Another way of making fuel out of human waste? Turn it into biogas. That's a mixture of gases created in the processing of human waste and other organic materials. According to a 2015 report, Extracting biogas from the world's annual human waste output could be worth the equivalent of up to $9.5 billion in natural gas. Here's author Lena Zeldovich.
2: That's how much gas we wouldn't have to produce by drilling, fracking or whatever. We could just use it, you know, from what people leave when they go to the bathroom. That bounty is being replenished by all of us every single year. For as long as humans continue to eat, just money waiting to be made. The report is from the
3: United Nations University Institute for Water, Environment, and Health, also known as the UN Think Tank on Water. It found that human waste as a potential fuel source would be great enough to generate electricity for up to 138 million households, at least that's in theory. And in practice, there are wastewater plants working on ways to convert sewage waste into renewable energy.
5: We don't even look at it as a waste anymore. It, you know, it's not a liability. It's, it's really an asset. That's Chris Piot,
1: an engineer for D.C. Water in Washington, D.C. D.C. Water's Blue Plains is one of the largest advanced wastewater treatment plants in the world.
3: When a plant is advanced, it means it is able to remove that extra nutrition from the water that wreaks havoc on the environment. Piot says the plant has invested heavily in new technology to make their waste treatment more environmental and efficient. Spending $470 million.
1: That includes spending on new technology called thermohydrolysis processing and four enormous anaerobic digesters. This process works by first applying high heat and pressure to destroy pathogens and reduce odors. Then, inside the digesters, microbes break down the organic matter. In this process, biogas is produced and heat is recovered the gas is harvested and used to power other processes. The heat is sent back to the beginning where it's used to kill pathogens. That means the plant is now running on more than 50% renewable energy. And that translates into huge energy savings.
5: We're the biggest user of electricity in DC, single site user, because of all of the pumps and blowers and everything that we have here.
1: Another benefit from using the digesters the microbes eat away at the solids, cutting the initial amount of sludge in half. What's left is turned into a high-quality soil product, those biosolids we've talked
5: about. And really, for me, just return back to the earth from which it came. That's kind of the way the earth is supposed to work. We're not supposed to take all this carbon and nutrients and lock it into a landfill. It's really supposed to go back onto the land. So we're we're putting carbon back out onto the land. We're bringing nutrients back. We're completing that that nutrient cycle and that carbon cycle that's that other animals, too, you know, we're part of the ecosystem, too.
1: One final project to mention, heating or cooling homes using the heat from sewage.
5: Sounds kind of disgusting, but it's not. What we do is we we pull some sewage up, we put it through a, a heat exchanger and we heat clean water and then that water goes up into the building and heats the building. We have A building, our headquarters, and one other building in D.C. that are 100% heated in the wintertime with heat recovered from the sewers.
3: Piat and his team are working on a project that would expand sewage heating to new developments and public housing in the area. All these investments were costly, but because the plant is able to save money and create revenue from soil, energy, and heat, and by selling renewable energy credits, they expect to make that money back in 15 years. That's, of course, depending on where energy prices go from here. Ultimately, whatever we do with our waste, one thing is for sure. Thinking of it as waste is a waste. Here's Chris Piat again.
5: It's an asset that every city in the nation has flowing beneath its feet.
1: Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at Money at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Lena Zeldovich, Keith Knackman, Lillian Zaremba, and Chris Piot. To learn more about renewable energy, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton.
3: And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutsoft, and Katie Ferguson. The associate producer for Best Case Studios is Hannah Leibowitz Lockard. Additional editing help from Megan Oftermatt. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, Jeremy Binks is our news editor, and Tim Roston is the executive editor for Market watch The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam retzer Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the Market Watch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.